You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, please do open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, or what I'm going to read of chapter 7 is there on page 10 in your bulletin. I'm going to break in in the middle section, just quickly summarize what happens between these two parts of the, of the chapter. But After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's, he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now in the interlude, which I'm not going to read, John the baptizer sends some of his friends to Jesus to basically say, Are you, in fact, the one, the word to look for? And Jesus says, Report what you see. God's work's being done. And then when those messengers leave, he talks to the crowd about who John really was, basically from Isaiah, that he was a messenger that God had sent before his face to prepare his way. There's this interesting response. The tax collectors justify God when they hear that. That's a language that's used. But we're told the Pharisees and the lawyers have the exact opposite response. They, we're told, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So the tax collectors had been baptized by John. They declare God is just. Pharisees reject God's purpose, not having been baptized. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, you know, it's a funny thing, this generation that I'm working in. John came not eating and drinking with a stern message of repentance. And they said he has a demon. I've come eating and drinking with a message of rejoicing and provision. And they call me a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he says something very interesting I want you to remember. He says, yet wisdom is justified by all, her, all of her children. We pick up our reading. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Please, Father, work on us now as we hear it in Jesus' good name. Amen. It's really important to remember as we're working through Luke's gospel that Luke is not giving us a series of news flashes. Oh, look, a healing. Oh, look, someone had a demon cast out. He's not, it's not a real-time narrative. He's probably writing this quite some years after these events, and he's writing a book. He calls it an orderly account, and it's a book with a purpose. You might remember in the very opening verses, he wants this book that he's composing to have an effect. He wants this book to give his friend Theophilus certainty, assurance about the things he's heard about Jesus. So what we're looking at in the gospel here is well-crafted literature. This is not sort of thrown together in a scattershot way. This is a, a, a crafted piece of literature that is taking us somewhere. And when you're working with that kind of literature, you will find there's a lot of structure. There's a flow to it. There, there'll be skillful connection among the parts that you might miss at first, but you see them once you see them. And you'll also find that Luke is connecting things in his gospel to sort of the, the larger macro story of Israel's Bible. And this chapter is an example of, of what I'm describing. He, he crafts chapter 7 in what you could think of as kind of two panels of a two-panel door. In panel 1, you've got these two miracle stories with the centurion and the widow, and then you have this discussion of the different responses to John, John's baptism ministry. Maybe that's kind of a hinge between the two panels. And then you have, at the end, the prostitute story. And I want to start with the first panel and just kind of look at how Luke is structuring things here. And in this first panel, we're going to see his literary skill on display as we hear what I'm going to call some early echoes, some early echoes in these first two miracle stories. Now, I know you guys know your Bibles pretty well, so I want to ask you something. If I were to ask you, in what part of the Bible does a Gentile military officer come to know God and a widow have her son raised from the dead? Where's that in the Bible? Bam. You would not say Luke 7. You would say, that's... The story of Naaman, the, the, the Syrian captain, and, you know, the, the widow of Zarephath, who had her, a Gentile widow, who had her son raised from the dead. And so what Luke is doing here in this first panel, he is obviously echoing this major epoch in Israel's story, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And we've talked before about why they're so important, because Elijah and Elisha minister in what probably is the darkest moment of wandering from God in Israel's entire history. King Ahab is trying to turn Israel into something like those horrifically immoral, cruel, wicked nations, the Canaanites that were in the land before Israel. 
Ahab's trying to like turn the clock back and turn Israel into those people. This would be like me showing up one Sunday and saying, okay, guys, I've got news for you at Trinity. We're done with following Jesus. No more. We're going to, I've got a, a, a kind of a cool ancient pagan religion I'm going to introduce you guys to. We're going to start. That's the level of like departure that's going on here. And in that just, this is the king, right? This is the top, the top guy in Israel. And this is the program. And it's at that dark, dark moment that God sends these two brilliant prophet lights, Elijah and Elisha. And if you look at their ministry, what you'll see is God is making known in Israel through them his absolute authority for one thing. What are the first words out of Elijah's mouth? The next time it rains is going to be when I say so. (laughs) I mean, that's boss, as the saying goes, right? That's God in charge. I'm going to bring this nation to its knees with a drought. But not just his absolute authority, his life-giving grace. There is no time in Israel's history where more life is brought out of death. Elijah and Elisha are the prophets who actually, both of them, raise someone from the dead. That's like, that's unheard of. So there's this absolute authority and this life-giving grace. And you notice those themes are strangely replayed right here in this first panel. Instead of Captain Naaman being left outside of Elisha's house so he can learn the humility that he needs to be healed... We have Jesus left outside the centurion's house because it seems that between the time that this Roman soldier sent for Jesus and when Jesus arrives, this Roman, this high-ranking Roman soldier has had a massive realization. And he sends people to Jesus and say, hold on, because he has realized this man that I'm calling for is commissioned by God to bring God's empire, God's kingdom, to this world. That's who this man is. That means all he has to do is say a word, and heaven and earth will obey him. So, hold on, Jesus. You don't need to come. I'm not even worthy. Just speak a word, because I, too, am a man under that kind of authority system. You see, this guy understands how an empire works. When Caesar sends a centurion to your area, he has Caesar's authority. And he has understood. He loves the Israelite nation. He's obviously studied their scriptures. He knows enough to know the Messiah when he sees him. And he realizes this Jesus represents the emperor of emperors, the king of kings, God himself. So Jesus, just say the word. This is one of the few times in the Gospels Jesus is impressed. (laughs) He kind of looks around. He's like, I hope y'all are paying attention. I haven't even found in Israel this understanding of who I am. So there's the absolute authority. But you also notice there isn't just this account of identifying Jesus' authority. There's also then, as with Elijah and Elisha, this life-giving compassion. Jesus is in this town of Nain. And, you know, you can imagine. I was trying to think about this this morning. A woman... Her husband has died. That brings enough grief, and she would have undoubtedly leaned on this grown son, and now he's gone. And not only is there the mother's anguish that her only boy is, is dead, but you know she's exposed in that culture to, to a lot of exploitation and, and, and poverty because you know she's reliant on provision through, through her son, and she's just weeping. There's just heartbreak and anguish here, and you see the heart of Jesus. It doesn't just say he walked up and gave orders. He, he had compassion on her. Mother, do not weep. And he touches the beer and he raises the dead. This is an unprecedented healing. 
Even as Elijah and Elisha, this has not happened with the prophets before. They raised people from the dead. I mean, people, he just, he raised someone from the dead. And the shock of the widow of Zarephath, whose son Elijah raised, is reflected in her words to him. She says, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of Yahweh in your mouth, it is truth. And that's the reaction here, too. You can see there in verse 16. They're just, fear sees them, and they're just, they're just stunned. They glorify God. A great prophet has arisen. God, is, God himself is visiting his people. So there's the life-giving grace, the authority and grace from the time of Elijah and Elisha. But it's interesting, there's another echo here, and it's nearer to us, because Luke has referenced Elijah and Elisha before. Can you remember where? It's in Jesus' opening sermon in chapter 4, and he's preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, and he says something quite painful. He says, I want to remind you that there were a lot of widows in the days of Elijah and Elisha. One had her son raised, and she was a Gentile. And there were a lot of lepers in Israel. One leper was cleansed. That was the Gentile Naaman. And you remember, the city erupts, and they try to kill him. They try to kill Jesus. So that echo is here as well. So here we have Jesus' authority and his life-giving grace on display, but the reality is he has already said there are a lot of people in Israel in his time who are no more ready to bow to his authority and to receive his grace than Ahab was ready to bow to Elijah. And there's a very troubling question throughout the gospel. Will some of these Jews of Jesus' generation prove to be the enemies of the God they profess to worship? while those who are far away from God come running into his kingdom? That's a, that's a question here. And I just want to pause here and just note, note something. You know, beloved, religion, religion is a strange thing. Will you do a quick thought experiment with me? Let's suppose that we were made to love what is most lovely. We were made to freely give our hearts to what is compellingly good. We were made by God to willingly throw ourselves into the gravitational pull of what is infinitely attractive. And in that surrender to that mighty force of goodness and love, we were made to become the fullness that we were created to be. And now let's suppose that we take that freedom that God gave us and we refuse to love what is infinitely lovely. In fact, we imagine that we can decide for ourselves what's good. And we'll freely, freely love that instead. And so what results from this is that we, our free hearts, begin to love, in some cases, what is just bad. Or we begin to love what is only derivatively good rather than that from which it receives its goodness. We are obsessed with the moon and want nothing to do with the sun, from which the moon derives its light. So rather than our hearts responding freely to this goodness that they were made to love, our hearts begin to demand that goodness must be defined by our own hearts and must conform to our own hearts. And what begins to happen is our hearts now are no longer free. They're actually broken. 
much like eyes that refuse to open and see the sun, refuse to see the light. We are our own masters. We will not look at the light, and they just remain shut. And what's happening now is the, the eyes have lost their function. They care, they're not free anymore. They are broken. They are without their proper function. And now bring that heart, that hardened, dysfunctional heart, into religion. We're now with God. But bizarrely, instead of our hearts being formed by God's godness, instead of our hearts just being quieted to absolute awe before his glory, instead of our hearts finding rest in his promises, instead of our hearts leaping in love for his law, instead of our hearts searching out his wisdom as we encounter the godness of God, these broken hearts, with God now, we begin to think that we have got a system in which God's godness can actually now be harnessed to our wishes and our choices because we're with him. That is the perversity of religion that can actually turn against God himself. And that brings us to the second panel. So we have those early echoes, and now we have what I will call an ancient voice. I didn't read it, but it's, it's in the chapter if you look at it later. Why does Jesus, having thought about what we just said about religion, why does Jesus, after observing how the religious Pharisees and lawyers, like they study the law of Moses for a, for, for a living, After he observes how dismally they responded to John's message, repent and be baptized, and how dismally they've responded to his good news for sinners, why does he say these words? Yet, wisdom is justified by all of her children. Let me ask you guys another question. Where in the Bible is wisdom portrayed as a lady? There's another, you guys are good. There's another deep resonance here with Israel's Bible. Lady Wisdom, in the early chapters of Proverbs, she cries out to the throngs. And her message, if you look at those early chapters of Proverbs, her message is basically that God, by wisdom, by the infinite genius of his ideas, made the heavens and the earth. He built the cosmos to be a kingdom. And he made human beings to rule that kingdom. And they were, we were to steward, to rule under God with wisdom that was attuned to his wisdom, attentive to God's plans, God's design for things, God's order that is in creation and it's in our social lives as we feel the necessity of moral rules and there's just a whole lot going on. God is framed the world and our life in the world to be a certain way, and human wisdom is just dialed into that. And that's how you rule the world in a way that brings forth all that God intended it to be. It's strange. You know, even non-Israelite wisdom traditions, the Greeks, for example, they felt this must be out there. This ultimate source, this ultimate norm, this ultimate orchestrator. There's got to be something beyond just the changes of the world. There's a pattern. There's, there's order. There's, it's supposed to be some way. Even non-Israelites felt that. And so, like Israel's prophets, so the, the, the prophets of Israel are doing their thing. 
But Israel's kings are writing this wisdom literature over here, and so like the prophets, like Elijah and Elisha, the, the, the wisdom writers, the sages in Israel, they, as, as God's wisdom speaks through them, wisdom is declaring with God's own authority and God's grace that he didn't just build that kingdom that was forfeited by our sin. He is now restoring that kingdom. And he's calling human beings home to learn to live once again as his children, to rule once again in his name, to begin learning wisdom in what? In what? what is the beginning of wisdom, beloved? It is to fear the high king, to trust him, to submit to him. And what you see in the Old Testament then is both the prophets and the wisdom writers, they're all, as they talk about this framework of God's wisdom, they're all pointing ahead to the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul says that in Messiah, in Christ, his Greek name, his Greek title, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Why? God's wisdom, all the treasures of God's master plan are hidden in Christ because he says in Ephesians 1, it is in Christ that God has revealed his master plan to unite all things once again, to reconcile all things in heaven and earth. That's the master plan, and it centers on this Christ, this Messiah. And Jesus is before these people, tax collectors and Pharisees, and the wisdom of God that framed the heavens and the earth and that has crafted this plan to redeem and save and deliver and and transform his human creatures, that wisdom, that master plan is standing in the flesh in front of these people. Jesus' entire ministry is a proclamation. I am the master plan. I am the plan in the flesh. Now, you'll remember, just like in Proverbs, there are always two ways to respond to God's wisdom to his ideas, his master plans, his Messiah. One is you can justify God and his wisdom. The tax collectors justify God. Wisdom, God's wisdom, is justified by her children. To justify God and his wisdom is to say, you know what? God's plans are right. We're declaring God righteous, declaring God just. Your plans are right. This is what's going to set the world to rights. This is it. This is the one. (laughs) This is the plan. And we justify God as we justify his wisdom because we declare God is righteous in fulfilling his plans. He said he would and he's done it. He's righteous. That's justifying God. Mary does this in her song. She sings, God has helped his servant Israel as he spoke to our fathers. That's justifying God. The tax collectors justify God. They say God is right because they receive the baptism of John. John comes with this authoritative, gracious plan from God. Y'all need to turn and get ready for your Messiah. What do the tax collectors do? They turn and get ready for the Messiah. They, They go to the Jordan. They have the same response now. As more of the master plan is being revealed, not just in the prophet who goes before the Lord, but in the Lord himself. And the most moving image of a daughter, a child of wisdom, is this prostitute. She never says a word. But in the tears that flood down her face onto Jesus' feet, and this costly ointment, probably bought with the wages of her prostitution, 
now pouring over Jesus' feet. And she's just weeping. It says it all. You will restore all things. You're the one who will restore all things. And you've restored me. You brought me home. God's reconciling plan revealed in this one has brought her back to her father's house. And her heart just overflows. She can't even find words. She has been freed by God's wisdom revealed in Jesus. To become what God made her to be. His child. His friend. She loves much. Because God has forgiven her so much. There's an entire conversation we could have. I would love to have it one day. What we can learn from this prostitute, not just about how people are saved, but how they are formed. How love begets love. What that has to do with Christian training, education, parenting, shepherding. But there's another response at the table, isn't there? You can justify God's wisdom or you can reject it. We're told the Pharisees, verse 30, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To reject God's wisdom is to say, not me. I don't need this. I don't need to turn like those sinners going down to the Jordan because religion, because I'm already good. I've got God on my terms. You know, there's this telltale mark of people who will not bow before God's master plan revealed in Jesus, what we call the gospel, the good news. There's a telltale mark of these kinds of people. They do not enjoy God's grace for themselves, and they do not enjoy God's grace for other people. He who is forgiven little loves little. The Son of Man has come spreading a feast. And they're just frustrated about the fact that he is hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he's a glutton and a drunkard. That's the reaction to grace in people who reject God's purpose for themselves. If you will not repent when God says turn, you will not rejoice. If you will not bow to the authority of God's plan that says you're ruined, but I will restore you, if you will not bow to that authority, then you cannot drink, drink deeply of God's grace. Forgiven little, you will love God very little. This should have been such a glorious party. Do you know what should have erupted? Is that woman wept over Jesus? You know what that whole room should have been saying? Look at this. This is God's plan at work. This is God's whole program. His wisdom has borne him another daughter and given us another sister. Look at this. Here it is. That should have been the response. But it's a cold party. The last thing I want to think about, just for a minute, is why this is so hard to hear in the modern world. I know you all believe in this. But there's something that pulls at you in the modern world that makes this actually a little bit hard to really connect to, and it would be almost foreign to people out on the street we might talk to. And this is the problem. For a lot of human history, as you know, 
societies, and I don't, I don't just mean individuals, I mean societies were, were kind of upward-facing. Right? They, they, they believed, they actually believed, not because they were duped, they actually like, believed this with all of their hearts, that things on earth unfold according to the plan, the purpose of God or the gods. They, they totally believed that. Well, that's long gone, right? So that, that kind of spiritual imagination, sometimes good, sometimes very, very bad, but that spiritual way of looking at things was eventually replaced by what we now have, which is the scientific imagination. And now we enlightened modern people understand that all that stuff that we once thought was God at work is actually just matter and energy doing its thing. There is nothing above us but empty space. And so now human societies are not upward-facing, they are forward-facing. There is no divine purpose. There is no divine plan at work. We all, I mean, intelligent people know that. There are only human purposes. Reaching for a better future, which if we all get together and work hard enough, we can eventually arrive at. And so the news of a Messiah, like we are Messiah. And yet, you know, whether you reject God's purpose, God's wisdom, religiously like the Pharisees or irreligiously like we do in the modern world, you can only reject God's purpose for yourself so long before it begins to bring ruin. And there are certain features of our modern world that I was thinking about it. They illustrate that ruin especially well. I just want to note a few of them so we can be reminded of how gracious God has been to awaken us. One thing that's happened in the modern world as we've rejected God's purpose for ourselves is what we could call an exhaustion of choice. We worship personal choice in the modern world. And that modern worship of human choice, human willing, human purpose, it has saddled all of us now with the impossible burden of finding our own path to self-fulfillment. I don't wonder why young people today are so stressed. They have been saddled with the burden of literally creating self-fulfillment from scratch. And then at a practical level, the liturgy of this worship, because every worship has a liturgy, the liturgy of this worship is a consumer society that offers you and me just thousands and thousands of choices every single day of our lives. There's so many options, and that has actually made our lives a ton of work. It is so peaceful not to have 10,000 possibilities, just have certain limited choices. But we don't, in the guise of making us free people, we all can choose what we want. We have so many choices now, our lives are exhausting. It is restful to know you have a purpose you did not invent. That is restful. And to learn to walk that path. And you do have to learn it and be creative. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And the wise find rest in that gravitational pull of God's grace for me, God's plans and priorities for human existence. God's good laws. It's interesting, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and are exhausted. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. That's wisdom. But not just the exhaustion of choice in the modern world as we have rejected God's purpose. Also, what we might call a pervasion of management. Our lives are just pervaded by management. Well, it's no wonder, because if there's no divine purpose, if there's no plan beyond all human plans, there are only human purposes. 
And so you've got all of us scurrying around now in the modern world. We're all, you know, seeking our own purposes, our own pursuits, our own choices. And obviously, in a world like that, somebody's going to have to referee. Someone's going to have to be the traffic cop. Someone's going to have to manage things so we can all get what we want and we feel we deserve, we should have what we want. And so there has to be someone to manage all of this. And so there's this paradox in the modern world. We are in a society now that worships personal choice, makes that the chief good. And yet at the very same time, most of us, I think, today feel more and more like our lives are being controlled by forces beyond us. Raising the question, is it possible that only a truly wise and virtuous people who hear God and are ruled by him can actually be free? But not just the exhaustion of choice and the pervasion of management. Lastly, the disappearance of grace. God's wisdom, God's master plan, God's purpose, it is overflowing with grace. God loves even the rebels and the untouchables. It's interesting that human visions of progress, we're going to set the world to rights. And the messiahs that carry those human visions forward, you know, invariably pushed far enough, they will have to scapegoat those who get in the way of the vision. And we find that now we are more and more a society of zealots for our own vision of righteousness, but without grace. There is no room at our table for the untouchables. Not so with the purpose of God, but God, but God, as sinners reject his purpose. He can save us from our foolishness. And my prayer is that he will give us grace to hear and to justify his wisdom as we carry on. More about that next time. But for now, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your authority and grace revealed in this text. We thank you for the pictures of those who justified your wisdom in their time, and we are sobered by those who rejected your purpose altogether. And in our day, with its unique challenges, Father, help us to be hearers and doers of your wisdom in Jesus' good name. Amen.